Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. So welcome to the show, E. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me, Mark. It's been a long time since I last saw you. And you look good. Thanks. I appreciate that. I've been trying to keep up my beauty routine in quarantine. You know. So I want to start with when you travel around Africa, you get a sense of different cultures of different people. And so you're from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. So why are Nigerians so entrepreneurial? I think like I always tell you, Nigeria has a mix of interesting characteristics that you'll find in specific kinds of emerging markets where people are also very entrepreneurial, like India, like certain parts of China, like Brazil. And what it is, is a dense population of people spread out over not very sizable geographic population, right? And at the same time, with very weak governments. So meaning that there's no guaranteed social safety net. So for most people, entrepreneurship is a survival move, right? It basically is the only way that you can essentially provide for not just yourself, but for people around you. And then at the same time, the market is around you as well. So it's not just a question of there's no opportunity and you must do entrepreneurship to survive. We're mostly trading people. At the same time, and it's the only path to real wealth, but at the same time, the market is all around you. You've got how many million people around you, right? So you try and find a way to serve them and keep increasing that scope over time. So I think we're very, I'll say we're survivalist entrepreneurs. And that's why you sense on the surface the deep entrepreneurship spirit that you find in Nigeria. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, there's definitely the sense of hustle that you see that you don't see in some other emerging markets. And so like, I don't think it's a coincidence, for example, that we get emails from Nigerian princes. Many of them are from Nigeria, and we're not getting them from the DRC. We're not getting them from Ecuador, right? So it does have this. Obviously, that, that's not sort of the full story, but there is this sense of hustle, the sense of urgency um, that you there get in Lagos that isn't present everywhere. There's definitely a hustle. But I also say that because I've studied the issue of cyber fraud a lot, and we have monitoring centers, a number of those emails are actually done to cater to a specific demographic of losers. Yeah, sure. Not in a bad sense. I mean, just basically like the average person sees an email from a Nigerian fraudster and knows this is bad news, but the people who don't are perfect targets, right? (laughs) Because then they can be suckered. So they actually like, it's a weird thing. But that said, I also think there is definitely a culture here. And the reason why people do those things is because these are the trades that people learn. People here want to get rich quickly because, I mean, once you think about, in Nigeria, you tend to think about things in terms of stock differences, right? So on the one hand, you have survivalist entrepreneurship. On the other hand, you have mega capitalism. You get my point. Like, there's no in-between. <laughs> there's no, I'm a small business. Like, every small business owner wants to hammer with a federal government contract and become Dangote. 
right? Like that's the dream, right? So oftentimes what happens is people pull other people along this path with them and then create that trail. And that's how you see Nigeria works. I mean, there's this really cool YouTube video talking about the apprenticeship system in the Igbo trading ecosystem, right? Where you work with your boss for a few years and he sets you up with a shop to literally compete with him, right? That's how Nigeria works. Like something's working for you, you're making money, you got to put your friends on. And the way you put your friends on is not by employing them because people got ego issues. You put them on by setting them up to compete with you, which can be a very, very weird concept if you're not Nigerian, but that's how it works here. (laughs) Yeah, that's an interesting point about the fraudsters that you mentioned. So I read a few years ago, for example, they intentionally include typos in their emails because the people who respond to the typos are the suckers, right? Like if it's a very polished email, then smart people would respond and then the scammer has to spend a bunch of days trying to convince them to wire $5,000. But if it's somebody who responds to email with a bunch of typos, then they'll probably much easier to convince. And so that point about, right, like setting up sort of, I don't know, these competition trees, I think is interesting. You see this in different migrant populations in the US as well. So for example, right, like Chinese migrants often have Chinese restaurants or laundromats. And so they have these social networks that then when a new family comes, they help raise the initial capital to seed either a restaurant or a laundromat. And obviously you don't want it to compete directly. You want to be a little bit further away, but it is obviously in the same business group. And I think these, I don't know, what might be called sort of kin networks are somewhat underappreciated in America just because the U.S. has this sort of tradition of individualism where we really can't name our great great grandparents and a lot of other societies. You can go back five or six generations. Yeah, yeah. And you know what's really funny about it is that, and this is something I struggle to explain to American entrepreneurs when they come to Africa, monopolies are an American concept, right? In our society, we have a saying, you can't buy the markets. Do you understand? You can't like the whole market can, one person can cook for an entire market and the food will finish. But if the whole market decides to cook for one person, he can never finish the food. And we say you can't buy the market. So the American concept of monopolies is a very interesting concept to us because it just doesn't exist. Do you understand? Like it's just something that we never see. And society actively breaks up monopolies. So in fact, if you even have a monopoly, the maximum a monopoly can be is maybe 60% of the markets. There must always be an equal and opposite competitor somewhere that will be part of that. And the reason why is because people create these competition networks for themselves. So for example, in Nigeria, we have three major cement players, right? Dangote, BAU, Bua, by the Rabius, and you have Lafarge, which is a foreign company, right? All three of them engage in the same business, built exactly, congruence are built exactly the same way, right? All from Kano. So literally, that's just how the the thing works. You have these dynasties that create competition for themselves and grow themselves and replicate themselves. Cool. And I want to return to this idea of Nigerian entrepreneurship a little bit and push back because, right, Nigerians are the best educated immigrant group in the U.S. They're better educated than Koreans, than Japanese and Chinese, etc. But Right. At least for me, and I've worked with a few Nigerians and my typical impression of sort of a Nigerian migrant, whether first or second generation, is they become a doctor or lawyer. Right. My former colleague used to joke, if you're a Nigerian, you can become a doctor, an engineer or a lawyer. Or if you're a woman, you have the added benefit of doing one of those and also being a housewife. And so, right, there is this sort of upper middle class professional career trajectory 
at least that's emphasized in the Nigerian American communities that I'm familiar with. But that isn't really the sort of, I don't know, entrepreneurship that we associate with like Silicon Valley or with, as I think about sort of Nigerian entrepreneurship, where it's really trying to build something from scratch. Yeah, but I'll tell you, that's what you see. Now, there are two yeah. elements to it. The first is entrepreneurship in Nigeria is survivalist. So in the country, it's like there's no option. Otherwise, people would actually take jobs, but there are no jobs. Now, when they go to the U.S. where there are jobs, right, the thinking changes. And what you have to ask those people is what they do with their free time. Because a lot of them are moonlighting, shipping cars back to Nigeria, building homes in Nigeria that they rent out, running all sorts of complex business schemes in Nigeria, which is why the flows between Nigeria and the diaspora are so huge, 25 billion. Because people are in the US. I have friends of mine who live in the US who run huge factories from Canada, from the US. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? So it, we're yeah. moving into this world of virtual work. Nigerians in diaspora have mastered it. <laughs> they control entire enterprises online through phone calls and through trusted networks that work with them here in Nigeria. But why do they still attain that level of educational attainment and stuff? Because they believe it gives them respect in the U.S. They believe it gives them a status in the U.S. The reality of the matter is also that Nigerians who are entrepreneurial in the U.S. are looked upon with suspicion for all sorts of reasons by U.S. authorities. <laughs> also, if you present as a doctor, this is a slight tip. I hope the IRS is not watching. You present as a doctor, but you're sending huge amounts of your money back home to do business in Nigeria. Guess what happens to your taxes? IRS is looking for fantastic. <laughs> so by the time you look at all these factors, you get a sense of why Nigerians present the way they do in the US. But don't be deceived. The entrepreneurship streak is still deep inside. And what you really want to find out is what they do nights and weekends. Sure. So I think the, the point you brought up about the sort of expat network and how they're investing again in Nigeria, it's really important. I think it's often underappreciated in the development conversation. So Shenzhen, when it developed, right, 1980 was a special economic zone. It had a few fishing villages, 100,000 people. And the first 17 years of its existence, some 80% plus of all foreign direct investment came from Hong Kong which is basically right, like it's actually walkable because Hong Kong has an island, but there are also territories on the mainland controlled by the British government. And all of these sort of kin networks, I think were very important to that early investment. It's not right, these big multinationals, they're important, but a lot of times the sort of initial kick for development comes from, yeah, my cousin has this project, uh, let me introduce you to him. And then that's how the sort of initial capital is raised to get the, the small and medium-sized enterprises to start scaling. Exactly, exactly. I would argue if you look at the last 10 years of foreign direct investment into a country like Nigeria, right? Or 50 years, actually. Let's use a longer time horizon. What you find is that whenever there's a market shock, right? Direct foreign investment naturally goes down, right? It actually goes down, shocking as that might seem, even though Nigerians need it more. The only thing that has stayed stable over the last 30 to 50 years of development in Africa is remittances. And today, remittances even comprise a higher proportion of contribution to the balance of trade of countries than the other forms of inflow. FPI, which is hot money, FDI, remittances, official aid. Remittances are the highest. And this is why it's so important for 
governments to pursue what I would call diaspora-friendly policies and to be very out there about supporting their diaspora in other countries to trade with them. Because the reality is that America is not going to trade with Nigeria by itself. A big proportion of American trade is Nigerians who understand Nigeria very well, now working with Americans to basically make the opportunities on the continent more apparent. And you can only reap those benefits when you have things like a decent exchange value currency, you know, floating exchange rates, when you have good investment policies for your own people, not even for the foreign investors, because a lot of countries, when they build charter cities, they're focused on how do I make this attractive to foreign investors? People always ignore, and as an economist, maybe you would disagree with me, that trade is not just a purely commercial conversation. There's emotion involved. There's trust involved. And those trust bonds between diaspora are much stronger than the trust bond between two random people doing trade on the internet. I keep saying that the reason why China has become such a trading center for the world at the end of the day is because of their active push to build diaspora clusters in multiple different countries. At the end of the day, all the trade from China is coordinated through Chinatowns. Without Chinatowns, trade from China would not happen. It's not a matter of cost. It's just a matter of representation. So I think there's a big case for governments, especially as we look into this new future, post-China and COVID, to say, okay, how are we going to empower our diaspora in multiple different countries to represent us? Yeah, I think that's an important point. I mean, most, right, like, obviously the numbers have to make sense, but most decisions aren't going to be made by the analyst in the back of the room looking at a spreadsheet. Most of these decisions are made by the people in the room shaking hands who can look each other in the eye or at least now in the COVID world, look each other in the eye on Zoom and do a virtual fist <laughs> yep. bump and think, I trust this guy or gal to keep up their end of the bargain. And that level of trust is important. And obviously that level of trust can be achieved more easily when there's a shared background, when there's a shared understanding, when there's a shared worldview. And that often does come through, at least in inter-country trade, through diaspora uh, networks. Exactly. Exactly. So something important to keep in mind. So... Back a little bit to refocus the conversation on entrepreneurship, right? You founded both Andela and Flutterwave. So walk us through the process of those. Yeah, I mean, I'll say for both of those companies, the story has been told again and again, but again, kind of highlighting the challenges and the opportunities of Nigerian entrepreneurship. They both happened because we came upon very opportunistic parts while we were on a previous entrepreneurship journey. So, you know, for me, I started my entrepreneurship journey at the University of Waterloo. I was part of something called the Velocity Program. And the Velocity Program just tried to help students to get into entrepreneurship very early. The university has had a long history of young people in school starting companies before graduating. That was how the BlackBerry was born. That was how Kick was born. And so I think money from one of the founders came into the school to basically build this Peter Thiel type program, but in a very polite way, <laughs> where basically the school was forced to create a residence for intending student entrepreneurs and a space for them. And then they cultivated those qualities on campus with a view to them, you know, graduating with a business in hand. And that was very, it worked really well. Lots of great companies came out of it. Pebble, Vidyard, Bufferbox, Talmic Labs, and they're called something else now. Lots of great business came out of that program. 
Ethereum sort of, sort of, yeah, you could say that. But basically, I came out of that program. I had a company. I went back to Africa to try and implement it. Didn't work out. And then started to morph the idea. Now, Andela started out because I had a conversation with an entrepreneur called Jeremy Johnson, who's just absolutely the best education and talent entrepreneur the world has. And he had built a company called To You, which was an online education company. But he was thinking carefully about in a world where education costs, quality education costs real money, right? How do you make this education work the investment for a child in Africa? I mean, that was his genius contribution to the world. It was like, literally, look, this education that this child has has to be worth something. You can't just tell someone, pay $40,000 to go to Harvard, and there's no economic return. In the U.S., you can make that kind of decision because you got student loans and all that. In Nigeria, $40,000 is real money. So the hope is that you can generate at least $100,000 of return on the back of that kid making that investment in education, right? And that was the vantage point by which we built Andela. The idea was very simple. Find talented young people with the capacity to learn. Put them through an expensive training program by all standards that teaches them how to build software, how to be engineering and technology leaders. Place them with companies that are willing to pay for the talent. And then by that way, recoup your initial investment in those young people, as well as give them a living wage and purpose, right? So it's, um, it was a beautiful program. It scaled incredibly. Obviously, as you can imagine, model has changed, but the core concepts remain core to a bunch of new innovations in the tech space. People don't know, but the concept of ISAs actually came out of our experiments at Andela, right? Hopefully one day the Lambda School guys will, <laughs> will give us the credit for it. But the idea was basically you can train these people much more effectively you can provide them some kind of guarantee. And, and that's basically how it works today. Cool. Yeah, I definitely want to get into that and sort of your ability to talent scout, because I think that's been a consistent theme in your career, identifying and empowering young talent. But before that, I want to touch on a point you made regarding education on how it needs to, to teach real world skills. And so I have a buddy who works at a university in Ecuador. I went to give a talk there last October. And this is one of the best universities in Ecuador. And one of the things he mentioned is that he was sort of had your view a little bit skeptical of this traditional liberal arts education because it doesn't really teach sort of value additive skills. But what he found in Ecuador was that a percentage of their population would be, they might be part Indian or they might be poor rural, basically peasants who would go to the university and they would learn these cultural skills that would allow them to interact with the Ecuadorian quote unquote elite. Because there is this big sort of class slash cultural divide in Ecuador, where typically the people who are more of European descent are on sort of the top upper echelons and the people more of Indian descent are on the lower echelons. But what this sort of cultural education did, which is somewhat difficult to sort of encapture in just like an engineering degree, it's something like they, they have a class, how do you hold a wine glass so you can go to a dinner with all like the fancy the soft, people? Like yeah. yeah. And so yeah, tell me about the sort of how you teach those soft skills and what that looks like. Yeah, so we used to do something called improv. Like we used a lot of improv to teach the soft skills, role play. And basically the fellows, as we used to call them, would do their kind of technical classes during the day and in the evenings, they'll do the improv and soft skill sessions. And we became very well known for that, right? For providing people with soft skills. And I think that's very important. What I think is not as important is 
just kind of like the studying of the classics. Let me put it this way. It's not that I don't think it's important. I think it's stuff that the student can do on their own when they have the luxury of how they feed themselves and their families, right? If they know how they're going to feed themselves and their families, then all of a sudden, Plato seems more interesting all of a sudden, right? Like, like you know, all sorts of philosophy and all the high-minded thoughts and wine seems more interesting. But dude, man, you're never going to learn how to drink a bottle of wine or if you can't even afford wine. Hopefully only a glass of wine. Yeah, hopefully a <laughs> glass of wine, you know, whatever. But if you can't afford wine, you can't afford to hobnob with the rich and the mighty, it's never going to be interesting to you, right? It'll be like preparing you for a scenario you're never going to encounter. But after you have that money, as many of our fellows later discovered, those are skills you need to learn. And there's always resources online that help you learn it just in time. You know what I mean? But do you need to spend $40,000 that you don't have just to learn that? Do you need to get a degree in nephronology or whatever? I don't think so. I think you need to learn a skill that helps you put food on the table today. Sure. So, all right, like a lot of your career today, you are a venture capitalist. And before at Della, for example, you were training talent. And then as the executive of Flutterwave, obviously, you had to hire talent. So how do you think about talent evaluation, right? How do you see the kid who has a lot of potential, but is maybe a little bit rougher on the edges and know that this person is going to be sort of successful? And how do you see that and then empower them to achieve that success? So I think the secret sauce really, I mean, many people have many ways of evaluating talent. Some people look at talent from the point of view of, are they intelligent? Can, do they you know, have some innate intelligence, IQ or whatever it is? I tend to see these things a little bit differently, which is that at the end of the day, what determines how valuable talent is, is the amount of effort they're willing to put in, in polishing themselves. And so when we designed kind of talent funnels at, at Andela and even at Flutterwave, what we were particular about was creating a system that gave everybody a default yes, but <laughs> if you get my point, like you're automatically accepted into the fellowship. However, you have to score X, Y, Z on these technical tests. You have to have these type of character traits. You have to have this level of knowledge. And we keep raising that bar over and over and over again. Because in that process, the knowledge that you attain, whether you're accepted into the fellowship or not, is yours for the rest of your life, right? But if you show us that you're willing to make these sacrifices to attain a certain level of knowledge, then we can take that as willingness to do the work required to accelerate. And oftentimes we're right in that equation. And obviously, are there challenges to it? Yes. Are there inequities associated with it? Yes. And we try to reduce those by providing people with opportunities for you know, meeting with a group of people, getting a laptop, getting access to the internet, getting the right kind of support along their journey. But I think a lot of talent initiatives fail because there is some concept of the chosen ones. And I think there's no concept of the chosen one. I think talented people pick themselves by virtue of the amount of work they're willing to put into learning. That's my opinion. Sure. So one thing we've sort of discussed in the past a little bit is how Nigerian entrepreneurs and Western entrepreneurs typically face a different set of challenges. And so one of the things that you mentioned is that when you're pitching a Nigerian company in the US, you sometimes have to use an analogy like it's Uber for X or Stripe for Y, even if it's not actually functionally that because the just market environment in Nigeria is different. So can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I feel like when you're pitching to US folks, US folks are very 
navel gazing <laughs> naturally. <laughs> they tend to think the whole world is the US and on some level they're probably right. <laughs> but you know, like oftentimes the wholesale copycat approach doesn't quite work, right? One of the bigger challenges is that how do you explain what you're doing in terms of how the other person would understand? Because the point of communication is not to express yourself like people think, in my opinion, right? It is to be understood. <laughs> That's the point of communication. So if I'm, if I'm showing up in the US and it looks like Uber, uh, okay, I can say it's Uber. I'll give you an example. Like We have a platform that provides lease-to-own services to drivers on rideshare platforms. If we're using the analogy thing, it's more fair than it's Uber. However, we have to just say, oh, we're building fair, or I mean, sorry, the Uber, because most people don't know what fair is, of blah, 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 just so we can gain acceptance. But we, it's more complex than that. It's not just about ride sharing. It's also about leasing the cars because the Uber model assumes car ownership. In Nigeria, car ownership is 2%. <laughs> so you, people don't have cars to put on the road. <laughs> it's a very simple thing. So sure, you, yeah, have I think- to give them, you have to give them cars to put on the road. So you can do a ride-sharing thing. So these are some of the examples of of kind of the nuances with doing business in Africa. There's specific assumed infrastructure and stuff like that that exists in the U.S. that don't exist in Nigeria. When do we see a Nigerian company in the U.S. or in Europe? You know, I think we're going to get there very soon. I mean, a lot of people who use Calendly don't know it was made by Nigerians, right? Really? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's already there. Right there, right? <laughs> and there are many other examples of products people use every day, but they don't know that Nigerians make it. And I think right now, it's primarily because there's a reputational bias issue. I mean, I remember when I was in the early days of Andela, when we told people we're Nigerian firms, that was a very short way to ensure we never got a call back. <laughs> so firms are sometimes hiding themselves, putting US representation or whatever. I think there's also an ambition mm-hmm. issue also. Many of the I mean, many years of conditioning and being made to believe that the only people who are worthy of innovation are people in the US and Europe or whatever. People believe that stuff. You know what I mean? So there is work to do in terms of decolonizing people's minds in that respect. You know what I mean? So there's work to do there. But I'll say for free that the reality is, I think it's coming sooner than people expect. The world is becoming a much flatter place. And great products will emerge from anywhere in the world to dominate, provided the big four leave some room. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but I think we're getting there faster than people think. Sure. So your father is a pastor. How did that religious background affect your sort of career path and, and entrepreneurial decisions? Well, so I think for one thing, I think because of my background, I don't like to use the word religious, like we're very faith-based family. And that background really showed me quite a bit in terms of the many things that are intangibles, that are not factual, that are emotional about building something special, especially in emerging markets. So much of it would have is luck, or as people would call it luck. I call it grace. A lot of it has also taught me the importance of faith in the work that I do. And has given the work that I do some level of purpose because I like to joke with my father. I'm like, he serves God. I serve the people who serve God, right? <laughs> and it's for me, it's really played a role in, in a number of ways. I'll say, first of all, it's given me the ability to stay on this path for so long. I mean, this year would be my 10th year in entrepreneurship, despite a lot of disappointments as well as blessings. One understands that the core of why they're doing this 
and so many instances over the years and evidences of God's faithfulness make it easy, an easy choice and make one understand that they're living their purpose, right? The second thing is, there's a lot of things I do that seem not to make sense in the moment, but over a period of time could, because they're not rational decisions, quote unquote. I am the first person to tell you I don't only make rational decisions. I make, I try to make a lot of them, but my life isn't entirely guided by things people can see. And so a number of my thoughts and patterns and ways of doing things are heavily influenced by my faith-based angle or my spiritual angle to seeing things. And then I would say, finally, it's really given one a solid basis for ethics in business, right? Many things are very situational in the way that businesses operate. And then fairly, I mean, anybody who's run a business or being close to people running a business know that they're, you're walking into all sorts of dilemmas every day. However, being faith-based has always helped me to figure out what that thin line looks like and to avoid it, right? Even when the decisions that need to be made are very difficult or unpalatable. And that has helped me so far. I've not, I think I've not been in any scandal or anything like that. If people don't like me, maybe it's because I didn't stay long enough at the company. (laughs) So that's a good reason for people not to like you. I've never had to resort to any underhand tactics in dealing with investors or co-founders or anything like that. And I'm proud of that. So I think that it really gives me a real moral compass, the kind of things that I wouldn't want that don't comply with the tenets of my faith community and, and the laws of God I just try to just stay away from. And that, that helps me a great deal. So what advice would you give for entrepreneurs today with the particular focus on African entrepreneurs? So my biggest advice is that you need to understand society depends more on us as entrepreneurs then they can depend on politicians. And so we have an imperative to change society by doing the work we do. And so we need to be willing to level up. We need to do more to level up. We need to do more to, to show the right level of, stick with the right level of seriousness to work that we do and have an ambition for scale. Because if the work that we're doing doesn't reach enough people, then it's all for naught, which will be sad. So I think there's a big conversation to be had there about African innovators being more ambitious, coming together to build interesting things, not just working in silos, and ultimately understanding that the work that we do is to serve people and to provide the basis of development for our societies. So you gave a TEDx talk where you tell the African elite to, quote unquote, grow up. Do you think American elites are grown up? (laughs) (laughs) So I think there's definitely an infantilization of the elite across board. And it's followed by this level of moral indignation or supposedly moral indignation that stems from this belief that you're responsible for your success, in my opinion. So elites of all kinds should grow up. (laughs) That's really what it is. But there's something that Jack Ma says that I never left my head. He was like, look, when you're a millionaire, right, you can say part of that is because of your hard work. But when you're a billionaire, so many things had to come together in incredible ways for you that made you, that gave you where you are today, that you have no right to basically consider that wealth to be something that accrues to you alone. I don't know if, that, if I'm making sense here. But sure, basically, I, guess. I, think, I think the lesson there is basically that if you're elite in any society, you're privileged enough to have the money, the knowledge, and the power to determine where that society goes. And it is on that basis we should evaluate your significance to the planet. 
<laughs> not on the basis just of your riches. So, for example, you know, like for what it's worth, if you look at the way people like the Koch brothers spent their money, for good or for bad, they had an influence on American society. So I don't expect billionaires to be complaining about how stupid the masses are that they're following Donald Trump, another billionaire. <laughs> you know, you have the money, the resources to fight. And you should. You should. You shouldn't just capitulate and take an agenda that's forced on you. You have money because you have a point of view to defend. And ultimately, that's what your money should be used for, for good or for bad. Sure. I think that's important that the elites of society yeah, have a vision for what good society is and try to work with others to implement and to create that vision. But I think at least one of the challenges in Africa, at least one of the jokes is that Nigerians only exist outside of Nigeria, because otherwise, when Nigerians are in Nigeria, they typically identify with their tribe or ethnic background. So is there a degree of truth to that? And then how does that relate to the challenge of getting sort of elite cooperation to focus on this broader social mission? Yeah, I mean, there's that perception. And I would argue that the elite actually spend a lot of money continuing to push that perception because it protects them. A society like Nigeria does not, it does not lend itself very kindly to meritocratic selection processes, mm -hmm. at least not yet, right? And so people tend to be represented on the basis of their tribe or on the basis of their religious leaning. For example, if you want to be president in Nigeria, you have to be Muslim or Christian or Southerner or Northerner. And then it kind of rotates in that way, right? And it's Christian South, Northern, Northern Muslim, and then maybe some variations of the above. Why do I say that? I say that to say that the reality of the way society is designed is that it provides a lot of incentive for elites who are typically on the same page to divide their people on the basis of religion and tribe, which is, and they spend a lot of money enforcing those divisions because those divisions give them legitimacy in sharing what we call the national cake. I don't know if that makes sense. But that, that's basically the way things have been designed in this country. Now, the reality, though, right, is that abroad, you just have a national identity. You all have a, a green passport. And because the society is meritocratic, no one's going to give you a slot because you're Nigerian, right? In fact, maybe they'll take slots away from you because you're Nigerian. You now have a, a new kind of appreciation for meritocracy when it happens especially to somebody from your country. I think that for our elites, the challenge for them is going to be, how do you rise above this tendency to carve out for yourself a piece of the national cake by virtue of your representation by tribe or by religion and start to build a coalition or an army of young people who meet the meritocratic criteria for any kind of reward or accomplishment or appointment or whatever from the state. And that's really how we're going to be able to shift that. It can, the poor masses cannot be leveraged with politics and with division to then give a slot to the privileged. It has to work the other way around. And how, how does that look? It's like I mean, I have a lot of respect, as much as people may not agree, for philanthropists who say, 
I want to give scholarships to people from my village. I think that's a good thing, right? I want to give opportunities to people who come from where I come from. I think that's a good thing because then that means that everybody acknowledges that at a higher level, meritocracy will be the bar. And I have a responsibility to push as many people as possible towards that bar. But what happens now, unfortunately, is the elites say, oh, there's no Igbo person on that council, or there's no Yoruba person on that council, or there's no, and I should be that person. Basically, using the poor as cannon fodder for their own ambitions. Meanwhile, it should be the reverse. You should be pushing the poor towards that. And I think the earlier nationalists of Nigeria understood that. Like, if you listen to the Sardana, I mean, they were fairly bigoted, and that was what it was at the time. So I'm not begrudging them that. But at the end of the day, they were very passionate about the economic and intellectual upliftment of their people. And they wanted to push more and more of their people towards that power of meritocracy, which was why the Saldana sent a lot of people to, to school abroad and created a university. There was a competition of sorts in that respect. I think the moment that Nigerians and Nigerian elite are able to revert back to that mentality of thinking our job is to push our people forward so that we can have the meritocracy, we can meet the criteria of meritocracy required to hold office in this country. That's when the country starts to change. I don't know if, if I'm making sense. Sure. Are you optimistic about the future? I am optimistic, very optimistic. However, I do understand that we will go through some very dark nights before we see the light. And I'm just waiting for the bottom. How do you think demographics plays into this? Because Africa has a very young population, yet some of the leaders are still quite old. And we're sort of running into this challenge in the U.S., where you have both of our presidential candidates are what, like over 675 years old. So it's sort of the OK Boomer meme. I mean, has that meme caught on in Nigeria? With such a large young population, there might be more of a demand for a seat at the table and, and this hope that they can bring a new mentality, a new attitude that ideally sort of leads to some positive changes. So I think what's happening in Nigeria, I can speak to that, is that there's a slow realization that there's only so much you can do without political power. I think just like in the U.S., we decided to ignore politics. That was our coping mechanism, right? The all crooks, ignore them. And I think what COVID-19 is showing young people is, hmm, that was not such a good idea. You know what I mean? Because these guys clearly don't know what they're doing. And even worse, they're imposing their spawn on us, right? As the leaders of this new economy who are taking commercial advantage. I mean, how else would you describe some of what has happened with America? And in Nigeria, it's the same. And so I think that's provoking new kinds of conversations with young people saying, we can't just ignore these guys, even though government is not as relevant in our lives as they used to be with a previous generation's lives. The truth of the matter is, our parents were brought up on the value that government is supreme. Government paid for college, sent them to war, gave them health care, told them when to get out of the house, told them when to stay indoors, fought their wars. The government did all that, right? And so when we came in, we came into financial crisis. Government has been a string of incompetence, a series of incompetence for many people in our generation. So we just consider them a joke. 
However, political power is the foundation of organized society. You can't do anything without that mandate. <laughs> you get my point. And so as young people come to that realization and they wake up and they say, hey, if we want to reach this vision of the future as fast as we hope we can, we have to engage government. We have to have a seat at the table. Until that desire is there, nothing will happen. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And to return a little bit to the tech conversation, there have been reports, not sort of since COVID happened, but I think over the last year of a lot of fintech companies in Africa raising money, particularly from China. So how has China influenced the tech ecosystem in Nigeria? And then more generally, right, like how is, is with Belt and Road, how is China influencing the, the broader discussion? So right now, there's been a lot of, I would say, the beginnings of an anti-Chinese backlash. People are not as welcoming of China as they used to be, particularly in the face of discrimination of Black people in China. But I would say prior to now, there was a sense of cooperation and respect. As you know, many young people consider China an important trading partner. Many Nigerians consider China an important trade, trading partner and infrastructure partner. But what remains to be seen is what COVID makes of that collaboration, essentially. Yeah, I mean, there were all those reports of in Guangzhou of Africans sort of being abused and the McDonald's, for example, that said no black people can be allowed. But it seems as though that at least the conversation has receded. And for example, China in Zambia is asking for the third largest mine in exchange for some debt relief. And so I think there is a question of right, continued involvement of China in Africa and what that looks like. So this podcast is going to, we're recording this on May 1st, and it's going to come out about a month later. So this COVID conversation might be a little bit dated by the time that happens. But nevertheless, I think because maybe a lot of our, our listeners are in the US and aren't really thinking about how COVID affects emerging markets. And so Lagos is a city with 20 million people. A lot of them live in slums. How do you social distance when you're in a slum? How do you have a lockdown when people need to work daily in order to put food on the table? How is Nigeria dealing with this, these issues and, and what can we expect? So I think that there was a lot of lethargy on the part of the government in the beginning. I don't think they took certain things as seriously as they should have, particularly expanded testing. But now there is kind of a realization that we're playing with fire. I would even say, you know, Lagos seems like it has some stuff under control. It's going to run out of beds in a few days from now, maybe. But it seems like private sector will rise to the occasion. And there's all sorts of other provisions that are, could be in place to basically support. However, what I'm really afraid of are the subnationals where governance is very weak, like in Kano. Kano has had 150 deaths over the last four weeks. And people believe those deaths are COVID-related right? That's basically more than our sum total of deaths from COVID because we have just 40 deaths from COVID, right? So people are looking at Lagos, but I think there are other, and Kano is also a very big population, huge, you know, almost as large as Lagos. So I'm really looking to see what happens with government when we get to that point. There's also, the reality is, like you said, you know, social distancing is a myth here. It's almost impossible for all but people who can afford it. There's all sorts of other stuff that also have to be considered. But at the end of the day, I think what is going to end up being our saving grace or could be our saving grace is just the fact that we're majority young population. And look, 
I hate to sound this callous, but no matter what the dead count of COVID ends up being, I'd be very surprised if it matches that of AIDS or if it matches that of malaria. Yeah. I think that's probably right. I think the the sort of counterexample is that because COVID, I mean, AIDS is infectious, but is only through STDs. And so there are ways to only sexually transmit. So there are ways to protect yourself while COVID, it's much more infectious and therefore has this, well, the end result might be lower deaths. As we're seeing in the US, the cost of achieving those lower deaths can end up being very high just because of the reduced amount of economic activity. Yeah, but, but I think it's also helpful to keep in mind that this is not a disease with a very high mortality rate. So, you know, like if you're infected with HIV, the chances you're going to die are way, way, way higher than sure. if you're infected with COVID. So do I think that people are going to be infected? Absolutely. But do I think many people will die? Perhaps not nearly enough to, to register, quite frankly, if I'm being honest. Sure. So I think one of the other interesting questions is then the second order effects of COVID. So a lot of African countries, Nigeria, for example, exports, a lot of their budget is based on oil. And the oil price has cratered, famously going negative for futures for a few regions a few weeks ago. What does that impact have on the Nigerian budget? And how does Nigeria and also just generally Africa adjust to this new reality, especially because it's increasingly looking like there will not be a V-shaped recovery and so natural resource prices are going to be depressed for a number of years going forward. Yeah, that's, that's literally what's going to happen. So I think that Nigeria now has important questions to ask itself about its fiscal future. I think that subnationals will take the lead in terms of the response because the, the national government just doesn't have what it takes to lead on these issues. And that's going to create an interesting dynamic, particularly when it comes to investors and young people's relationship with government. Abuja is very far. <laughs> Nine <laughs> hours by car, you know, an hour by flight, which very few people in Nigeria can afford. It's very difficult for you to register your complaints with Abuja. When subnationals become the center of government, because the national government doesn't have the resources to maintain its federal might, that becomes an interesting proposition because what that means now is that government comes closer to the people. It also means that a lot of people are more accessible than you typically would imagine. It also means that many states will be jostling for economic opportunities. They won't be defaulted, quote unquote. You know what I mean? And when that happens, that's going to be an interesting opportunity for charter cities, in my opinion, because every state will be looking to build out economic opportunity for its people. And many states already recognize, and it just takes one state to prove it before others start to realize the power of encouraging private enterprise. And I think that as that starts to happen, federal might becomes less and less important and states become the nexus point of governance. You're going to see some interesting policy adjustments and changes. I've always maintained that Nigeria is like a nation of 36 countries. You know, <laughs> all different in their skills and capacities and ability, but it's being governed as though it's one country. And I'm sure. glad that oil is going to, would I say, create more independence for subnationals in this country because it's just about time. Yeah, I think that's going to be an interesting trend to see because I think governments are going to have a much greater appetite than they would in the past for new ideas for encouraging private enterprise because they're going to 
need to create new sources of revenue for themselves. If you look at tax collection in much of Africa, for example, it's less than 10% of the population is actually paying taxes. And so if you're able to create a, a charter city that has a revenue sharing agreement with the government, then this can create a large amount of wealth that can help finance a lot of other government services. So, right, like, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about cities, but there's a joke I like to tell about cities. So you can start a start a city in three ways. You could be a government. So that's like Abuja. That's like Astana in Kazakhstan, like Brasilia. Or you can have an economic rationale. Typically, it's a port or sometimes a mining community that starts off with this number of people that then grows over time to become a city. Or the third reason is you could start a religion. And so this is like Salt Lake City in Utah, which was started by the Mormons. And there's this interesting example in, in Nigeria. It was reported several years ago in The Guardian of a church, and I forget the name now, that was effectively acting as a city government. It was like paving roads, providing public goods, providing education Called services. Clean and land. Yeah. So one, can you tell us a little bit more about this model? And then two, how scalable is it? I think you're going to see a lot more of that. But Clean and Land is an interesting vision, or would I say example. Basically, you had this uber charismatic preacher who knew and wanted to grow his church and then created this community with a university, has industries, has regular events. And I would argue that all over Lagos to Ibadan, Expressway Ibadan is one of the second largest cities in Nigeria. There is like a train of different churches that have done the same thing. The church my father leads also has something called Ajebo. It's a camp. It's a church camp. We also own another camp in the South. So this is a very tested model. But I think anybody who knows Bishop Oyedeko knows he's an administrator per excellence. So he just took his to another level. Since faith is a big part of people's lives, people go there and they live there. And they, whenever they go for church programs or even, you know, whenever they don't want to go for church programs, they live there. And there's going to be more of those things because there's more development along that axis of society. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens. So I think that's where we are. Now, in terms of what we will see going forward, I think, I think the first trend will definitely be company towns, in my opinion. I definitely see that happening. A number of companies are already starting to have those conversations about leaving Lagos and moving somewhere cheaper, particularly for large portions of their workforce that are strategic to them, but have to be maintained at a much more reasonable cost, if you understand my point. So people are looking at you know, setting up a company town where they can provide perhaps more access to people. So I think those are examples of things. Those are examples of things that will definitely happen over time. But I think that ultimately, you're also going to have governments positioning for those jobs that come from those company towns. And that's where the opportunity to revenue share and provide infrastructure support for these companies becomes real. Because obviously, in a depressed economy, you can't expect the company to devote the vast majority of its income or debt to such intensive CapEx projects. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. So there will be that collaboration between infrastructure providers and the government. And to be honest, there are variances of those things already happening. If you look at Equa Atlantic, if you look at Orange, uh, Orange Island or Banana Island, if you look at Lekki Free Trade Zone, there's already these things happening all over Nigeria at present. So there's already a clear path towards that kind of arrangement with multiple governments across Nigeria. And others are joining the ranks every day. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Though I think one of the challenges is you get all of these in Legos, as you mentioned, Echo Atlantic, Lucky Free Trade Zone, where you have a private sector developer that's providing relatively good public goods inside that development. But then you have the challenge of, right, Lagos is a city of 20 million people. How do you then build the connections? Cities, to a certain extent, can be judged their labor market. So they can be judged by the average commute time. If the average commute time is extremely high, then there's a lot of productivity lost by people waiting in traffic or by people taking buses or whatever it is. So when thinking about the future of Lagos, right, by 2100, it's supposed to get have a population of about 80 million people. There, right, while we are seeing these private developments spring up to provide some of these public services, there's obviously still a role for government integration with all of these sort of different islands and, and better transportation infrastructure. And so what does that look like? If we look at the 19th century, for example, Paris, which they basically bulldozed some slums to create these highways. And the reason was actually so they could march troops through so there wouldn't be revolutions in Paris. And Lagos doesn't really have that risk because the capital, Abuja, is in a different location. But at the same time, there needs to be some like broader integration of, I think, the better transportation infrastructure in Lagos, given the traffic. And that requires the role for government. So do you think government is up to that challenge now or might be come up to that challenge? in the future? I think it depends on the leadership of Lagos. That's a very important topic that no one really knows the end of. I think if you look at Lagos since 1999, and maybe you do a Google Earth review, you can see that Lagos's evolution has not been planned. It has just been very chaotic and organic in that way. And I think unless Lagos, Lagos hasn't shown the capacity to plan itself, so to speak. And it has a level of arrogance, I would say, that may prevent that kind of reform from happening because it's a seat of commerce. There are a lot of companies there already. There's no incentive to change. So I think you're going to have two things happen, ultimately. One thing is that there's a bunch of southwestern states, all of whom are under incredible revenue pressure, all of whom have very progressive leadership and who are eager to if one can say, built out of Lagos. Do you get my point? So you might have some kind of kind of like a northeastern corridor, similar to what you have today between New York, Connecticut, New England, and so on and so forth, right? You might see something sprawl out from Lagos in that way. And then I think you might also see a, a West Coast emerge. So what do I mean by West Coast? I mean, people just literally, I'm tired of this, you know, let's go and set up a brand new society somewhere else based on the lessons and with a specific set of values, which is what we're trying to do in Calabar ourselves, right? We start from the right principles. Our areas are zoned. You know, we have the right kind of public-private space balance and so on and so forth. So I think those are like literally the two options I see emerging out of Lagos. Cool. And yeah, let's get into Talent City. But before we jump right into there, so you helped sort of create Yaba, one of the, the sort of tech hub of Lagos. I played a and, very role, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, well, you played a role in, in the creation of that. And so I think at least in some of our previous conversations, you've alluded to that role in that creation influencing your thought on Talent City. So walk us through what Yaba is, how you helped create sort of the modern incarnation of it, and what you learned and what you're taking from that experience to Talent City and what you hope Talent City can become. Yeah, so I mean, I grew up in Yaba. I went to school here. I had lots of friends in Yaba. And I think that one thing that I, I love about Yaba is just its dynamism, very cultural place. One of the few places in Lagos with a lot of old landmarks that are still standing. 
It has a lot of schools, has a university, has a cultural vibe, you know, even though it's not been fully explored, in my opinion. I love this place. I mean, I grew up here, so I definitely love it. Now, what has happened with Yaba was when we tech folks came, we had an option between going and staying with the stuffy bankers in Victoria Island, where the rest of commerce in, in Lagos centers, and with its traffic and attendant problems, or locating somewhere else. And the leaders of the ecosystem, Bosun Femi, who started out this thing, they're the real fathers of Yaba as an ecosystem, picked the latter option to settle in this youth-friendly place, particularly because of its proximity to talent from the University of Lagos, which is just down the road. And I came into this ecosystem. I used to trek from right, I used to live right beside the University of Lagos and trek all the way to Harbour Macaulay, all the way to the railways and all of that. And they imagined that, look, if they can start somewhere, they would be able to ultimately convince the government about turning this cluster into some kind of tech cluster, so to speak. Now, that never happened. And that created a lot of problems. So when I co-founded Andela, we started in Yaba, naturally, because that was the only place I knew, at CC Hub. We grew out of CC Hub. We went to another place on Haber Macaulay Road called 314 Haber Macaulay. We grew out of that, went to PhD Estate. We grew out of that, went to Fadei temporarily. We grew out of that, went to another office on Haber Macaulay. We grew out of, so, you know, like I moved offices in the first year six times because we were growing and there was no grade A office space where we could grow into. Ultimately, after I left the business, they moved to Ilukweju because that was where they could accommodate that number of staff that they had. And Ilukweju is another, it's, it's not far from Yaba. It's, uh, it's just down the street, maybe another 10 minutes away, but it's now on the outskirts towards the mainland. And despite that, you know, we're taking over an existing property because of speed. We were renovating it. To make that place grade A, we had to spend ridiculous amounts of money. And I think the cost per square meter is, was roughly about $500 per square meter. Now, other businesses were coming into Lagos, seeing the opportunity Andela had created with talent in Africa, and obviously making the more rational, quote-unquote, decisions to locate on the island. But they were paying $850 per square meter. No housing, long commutes for their staff, crazy stuff. So this is what informed my thoughts about Talent City in the sense that what would happen if you could designate a space where tech companies knew they could come and scale, right? They could put their most critical engineering staff there. They could come in scale. It had the quality of infrastructure and quality of life that tech people need to be able to function. Because a lot of places outside Lagos, they don't have those things, if you get my point. They don't have those things. They have bad internet infrastructure, poor quality buildings. They're not grade A. Not enough thought put into the quality of life of young people. How do you create activities for them? How do you make it fun? Are there young people in the vicinity that could act as some kind of attraction? Because you have to meld with society. You can't isolate yourself. That's a big lesson for me. You can isolate yourself as a city and expect to thrive. You have to merge with society in some way, in an organized way. And so that's what's informing our design for Talent City, where we're trying to build this charter city specifically dedicated to harnessing technical technology talent. And we think it stands a better chance 
than many other attempts because, you see, technical talent is famously sedentary. You understand what I'm saying? There's no need for world-class transport infrastructure when you have Zoom. <laughs> you get my point. <laughs> you know? I mean, it helps to have it, but people don't leave every day. They're not, <laughs> they're not leaving town and coming back every day. You know what I mean? Also, most people care about the company of other technologists and quality of life. Those are the most important things they care about. You know, as a group, we've really kind of invested. We're very invested in, in this type of city building, especially because we want it to be a template for what other cities could look like eventually. And we've gone very far. I was just explaining earlier, you know, we've developed our city plans. We're now going through a costing process to understand what we can do. I think the biggest benefits for businesses that are looking our way would be a couple of things, three things mainly. The first is providing your employees quality of life in an amazing and serene environment where there has a reputation for being very hospitable and safe. Second of all, the cost per square meter. We're looking at a target cost per square meter of $100 to $150 per, per year. So that's a far cry from what you typically pay in Lagos uh, for the same quality of infrastructure. And then I'll say the third thing is we have a big focus on identifying young people who can be trained, a big focus on identifying talent that can be trained and that will stay. And you're far away from Lagos where your talent can get poached and so on and so forth. And then another big element of that is also the taxes, you know, the tax breaks that you can get. It's in a free zone, so you get no corporate taxes. We have opinions from the FIRS to support that. There's a lot of benefits to being located within the zone, even for the rest of your business. These are some of the things that we're going to encourage. Cool. So one of the, I think, challenges of any new city project is getting that initial mass of people to move. Nobody wants to be the first person to move to a city because then there's no grocery store, there's no restaurant, there's no people to date, there's no people to hang out with, there are no jobs. So how do you get that first like thousand or few thousand people to move to Talent City? So the goal is to sometime before July, we want to put together a basically an online showroom where people can see what their lives could look like and then start to have people apply to be invited. And the idea basically there would be you build anticipation and then you admit a bunch of people at the same time. And our minimum number is about 100 people. And we would cost all these things and make provisions for them and then selectively start to add newer and newer and newer groups of people as we go along. So that's kind of our strategy in that respect. Cool. That sounds good. So you're going to open the showroom in July. And when, when, when are the first residents going to move in? I'm really hoping we can get them in by November before the carnival season. So people can come and <laughs> get, sell them on Calabar, move in and we can have a carnival. <laughs> yep. 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 So we're going to have a, a carnival. So the idea is, you know, if people are settled in by carnival season, then we get a lot of interest because people want to come in and visit, see what's going on. You know what I mean? So all yeah. dependent on financing, of course. <laughs> but that's the point. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the financing is always tricky. Like charter cities are sort of a new one tested model. And it's, yeah. it's too much like real estate for venture capitalists. Well, you know, I think that the risk is a little bit overpronounced because I'm still looking for the right financier, I'll tell you. I'm making uh, some slight progress. But if I'll you guys are listening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, there are two categories of funding that a charter city needs, right? There is the conceptualization of the idea, 
and the negotiation of key documents and elements with the right parties, right? Yeah. Like, how do you make this Charter City idea more concrete? And I would argue, you know, like 250K to 500K gets a decent team there in record time, identifying the land, building the plans and all that. Now, project finance involved in the building of the city, I consider to not be the responsibility of the charter city itself. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's sustainable for a charter city. So who finances it? I think private developers will. And in fact, I'm confident private developers will. If there's infrastructure and they don't have to put their money in infrastructure, oh, they'll come. They'll all come. They'll all come. They'll all come and build what they want to build. And I think that's really what we should be encouraging, in my opinion. There is so many great models from the way estates are developed in Nigeria. It's just they don't have those additional policy elements. But there's so much, you know, you have estates of hundreds of homes or thousands of homes in a set area. That's how it happens. You don't see VGC looking to build homes for people who live in VGC or Nikon Town. People in Nikon, you know, they don't do that. They build the infrastructure. They set up the place. They give you some general idea of the rules and that's it. So it's that conceptualization and the initial acquisition of the land that there is need for charter city financing for and perhaps the development of technology to support the new ways of doing things. But I don't think that a decent charter city project needs incredible amounts of money. If you fund a charter city project with a million dollars, which I think you can actually compound very easily in no time, within three to five years, you know, I think that's enough if you're working with a serious team. Yeah, I think that's right. The initial funding for to get the deal in place, to get the master plan drawn up is relatively small when we think about, I mean, it's, it's sort of a standard seed around in Silicon Valley. So let me ask you one final question, right? Like you're, you're focusing on remote work on sort of this emerging like computer engineering, computer software talent. So how does that look like in, right? Like how can you take advantage of the current crisis? And then two, how do you scale that effectively? Because if we think about economic development, the countries that have gone through it recently, like China, Korea, Japan, they've all focused on, on manufacturing. So like how big can you build the city on remote work? First of all, I'm broadening a lot of my thought processes in terms of who comes to the city. I think there's a role for manufacturing in the city, especially new and innovative kinds of manufacturing. And we have great power. We have a gas power plant. We spend considerable amounts of money building a gas power plant. So we know how to do it and we can power you know, the area. So I'm fairly confident about, more confident about manufacturing and all that also coming into the zone given its natural advantages, including the fact that it has a port right next to it. But in terms of how COVID is helping us, we've started to engage people and people are saying, look, guys, I need to get out of Lagos. Lagos is the state with the number one number of infections. They've lifted their lockdown. There's so much going on. You know what I mean? And I'm, this is expects to, be, to, to continue for a while, if you get my point. So I think that, quite frankly, there is quite a bit to learn from these our users. The demand is growing and we want to keep educating our users and learning more about them and showing them how we are an alternative for them and also start to plan for them to move in. Once we can answer the finance question, we'll definitely gather steam on that. But I can tell you for a fact that I have technology companies already telling me that, look, 
once your city is ready, if it has this level of infrastructure, I'll move my people in day one. Sharp, sharp. Like right now, right now. You know what I mean? So because of COVID especially, because they need a place outside of Lagos where they can put all their people, continue to do essential work. And Calabar, where we're looking at locating, interestingly enough, doesn't have a single case. So it has no COVID cases. So that's an interesting opportunity for us. Cool. Well, great. And good luck on the city. And let me know when I can get a tour. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure by the next time you come, after the first time, we would have a tour. But I'll send you those city plans so you can take a look at them. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for coming on the show. Same here. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.